Well, good evening to you. My name is Steve Price, and I have the privilege to join with you this weekend. Um, I have a few public service announcements. Number one, there's a black Hyundai with license plate GTL990 from Lynn County with your lights on. I think that's my car. Let me go take it. <laughs> I was asked to make that announcement, so if that's your car, just FYI. Um, number two, um, I could not bring my wife uh, with me this weekend. Uh, many of you know that our father, her father, my father-in-law lives with us, and he took a spill in May, and uh, he's just now getting to the point where he can travel. We did a few trips, but we went to, uh, my wife took him to John Bloom's memorial service and Hutchison, Kansas, and that about did him in. So we didn't think this was a good trip this weekend. And so she's home there, and our little girl, Gracie, although she had her ruptured case of appendicitis, that was all over Facebook, uh, according to my wife it was. And, uh, and she's better, but she got a bit of a cold this week. So I brought a couple of my sons and a nephew and several people from our chapel, and uh, I, uh, I hope you get to know them well. Uh, the third piece of housekeeping is, I'm really sorry that you didn't wear your shirt tonight. <laughs> See, last time I was here, I got this shirt. Okay, Now, I know it looks too big because I think I'm like 6'4 and weigh 290. I'm really 5'19 and weigh 150. Well, that's not true. <laughs> but I'm wearing it with pride because, you know, it's kind of my second home here. So, yeah, thanks, Bill. So thank you. Thank you very much. Now, um, we're going to uh, begin tonight uh, by what I would consider my most favorite thing to do, and that's to pray. And then I'd like to introduce our topic for the weekend, and then I'd like to talk about one of the aspects of our great God. All right? So that's our simple outline. So let's pray. Our Father... I feel like when we just utter the name Father, we, um, we actually say so much by that title. The Father of all comfort. The Father who is intuitive about knowing their children's needs, who will meet them in the right way, in the right time. The Father who plans ahead, who sees the end from the beginning. The Father who disciplines as he knows is best. There's so much to your title that stands in your character. And what we want to know, Father, what we want to ask you, Father, is that we, we, we would know you better. We would know you. And we would know you and love you like none other because we know you more. Father, this hour will take a special measure of the Spirit of God to do what is humanly impossible. I ask you to do that in the gracious and precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Your God, your God is a genocidal God. Your God is a God that is infanticidal, takes babies' lives. Your God seems selfish. 
Your God seems self-absorbed for his own glory. Your God is homophobic. Your God is, is, is anything but kind. Your God is a God that is ridiculous. What I've just cited to you is a paraphrase from one of the neo-atheists of today. He uh, specifically attacks the character of our God in such a way to not just say, I don't believe in God, but he does so to demean the God that is yours as we speak. Now, most of us would hear that kind of language and that kind of uh, terminology, that sort of uh, uh, diatribe, and we would, we would dismiss it. We would, we would just uh, uh, eject it from our consciousness. But there are some of us who can't get that out of our heads. Now, it may not be visible to the naked eye, and it may not be uh, easily seen on the surface of your soul, but it's still there. For when there is a trial of life that creeps in unawares, as is normal for the Christian life, that, that statement, your God is distant, begins to creep back, back into your thinking, begins to creep back into your, to your consciousness, and all of a sudden, you have what we call the doubt. You have what we call the question mark. And it's like we replay the Garden of Eden all over again. And we hear the voice of satanic drippings that sound like this. Well, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. And what is not said is the implication that God is not good. Well, I think we need to stand up to that, don't you? Now, I don't think we need to stand up to it and say, oh, you're so wrong, and we just verbally joust back and forth. I just think we need to go back to the Word of God, and I just think we need to get it straight, and I think we need to set our minds aright, align them with the truth of who He is. It was Tozer who said that, you know, the problem with our Christianity, our morality, is that we have a very low view of God. We don't know who God is. If we knew God's character, if we knew his attributes, our Christianity would become easily uh, uh, ascended to a height of, of godliness that it should be. And he's right. For if we knew well the God whom we worship, the God who we sing about, the God whom we love, or at least we say we love, then I would suggest to you that there are certain things we would stop doing, and there are certain things that we would start doing. And I would suggest to you that we would be labeled Christians with accuracy and precision. Hence, discussion about the attributes of God. Now, before we get, now I know we're not to the scriptures yet, so don't panic. Don't panic, okay? But in order to do this discussion justice, I really have to stage it well. And if I stage it poorly, we'll, we'll be lost all weekend, and you'll know that because I wouldn't know what to say anyway. So, Now, when we talk about the attributes of God, it's a dangerous conversation, 
Because we, we take God, and it's like we're going to dissect him out. And here's his, here's his anatomy. We've got the, the bones of his omnipresence, and we've, we've got the, the, the central nervous system of his omniscience, and, and we've got the, the, the muscular system of his omnipotence. And we, we begin to sort of dissect him out and put him in these boxes and in these categories. And we go look at the box, and we say, oh, wow, that's incredible what's in the box. But you know, that's not God. You see, your human body, <laughs> you know, when we study the human body, we go, well, there's the, there's the anatomy, and there's the neurological system, and the musculoskeletal system, and the endocrine system, and the central nervous system, and we get all excited about it when we study those various things, and I did that for many years, and, and you know, when you do that, you, you kind of get it all separated, but you know what? That's not treating a patient. I just don't go into you and say, hey, how's your nervous system today? The guy goes, oh, that's really terrible. You see, we look at the holistic element of the human frame and the dimension, don't we? And we recognize that all the parts work together so that the sum of them is actually more glorious and grand than the individual part. And what we have to realize is that God is not a bunch of individual components. He's, uh, this word I've picked up in medicine many years ago, he's homogeneously mixed of all of his attributes so that all of them are in constant and eternal existence at all points in time, so you can't want, walk too far this way before you jump, uh, bump into his omniscience and you turn left and you'll bump into his omnipresence and you turn right and you bump into something else because God is that masterful uh, uh, being which houses everything and perfect harmony. Now, most of the world thinks I'm crazy. Well, I guess you can afford to be when you're right. <laughs> Sounds a little arrogant, but it's true. Now, do I have my slide? Oh, I'm supposed to do the clicker. <laughs> That's what you're... I was waiting for you to put them up here. Okay. So this is on, that's forward. Can you see the light? All right, maybe I'm supposed to do this. Oh, there we go. <laughs> when we give God gifts, does he get omnipresent? <laughs> eh, never mind, okay. <laughs> I thought it was funny, somebody showed it to me, I put it in the slides, what can I say? At 3 a.m., you do anything, right? <laughs> All right. Now, I'm sorry this is a little hard to see, perhaps, but I put this up because I think when we talk about the attributes of God, I, I do have to discuss them in a compartmentalized way, but I want you to see that it's hardly the goal here because even if we talk about the omnis of God, right, the three omnis of God, we have to, we have to recognize that they really overlap and intermingle. Now, I, I, I would love to talk about all three this weekend, but there's so many facets of the Lord I want to speak about, and I have a limited time. They, said, they didn't give me my usual 10 hours. I only got four. So, so we're, gonna, we're going to to uh, focus tonight on the omnipresence of God. But, but don't forget the omnipotence of God. Question. What is the greatest demonstration of the omnipotence of God according to the word of God? Do you want a multiple choice answer? Of course you do. It's easier. A. Creation. B. 
maintaining the universe. C, resurrection from the dead. D, none of the above. How many go for A? This crowd. How many go for B? How many would go for C? Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is, this is how it is. Because if I'm wrong, I don't want you calling me out. Don't worry, I won't call you out tonight. Now, truthfully, uh, uh, the omnipotence of God, whoops, I didn't mean to do that. The omnipotence of God, it's a couple of places in the scripture where he talks about that is really the hallmark or the measurement of, of the great power of God. Not only to mention that, but it was done through the spirit of God. And so we can't really ignore the omnipotence of God, but we get a, a beautiful demonstration of it in several facets in his creative order, both the unseen and the seen order of God in his maintenance of all that is created. You see, it's one thing to make something, but it's quite another to maintain it and to make sure that all all the animals on the planet get fed. You thought it was hard for Noah. He just had a boat. How about God who has to take care of all the earth? Now that's, that's kind of amazing. I can't even remember to feed my dog. That's terrible. Okay, now what about omniscience? Okay. Now this idea of all-knowing. You know, the all-knowing aspect of God is, is really quite flabbergasting in a sense. We'll talk about some of this from Job tonight. But do you, do you remember when, when God and Job finally had their final conversation at the end of Job, Job 38? And God went through this, this incredible list of all the things that he knows and he does. Can you imagine that if you're Job? I mean, I would, be, I would agree with Job. I'd keep my mouth shut. And that's exactly what was happening as God outlined. He says, you know, do you know, do you know where all the snow is stored? Do you know where that is? By chance? Could you go down there and unlock the door for me? Do you, do you know what happens when that animal calves in the wilderness? Do you, do you know about that? Do you, do you know who holds the, the storehouses of the water and how it's held up by the word of my power, according to Colossians? You see... The all-knowingness of God is really overwhelming. Now, in my own little puny existence, I spent many years studying the human body. I was impressed. I'm impressed at how the thing called the mitochondria can go through multiple bio biochemical cycles and produce a, a, a compound called ATP in which you hive off, you fracture off a phosphate, and suddenly you're awake. Not like you are now. You must not have any phosphate. <laughs> you see, it's, it's, it's phenomenal the way that God has constructed that little tiny cell. And not to mention when we get this COVID virus and we have all this, this uh, 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 virology involved and the little crown thing and the little, little molecule there. and the little, I'm going, oh, I love this stuff. Well, God thought about that. I'm learning it for the first time. God, God said, oh yeah, we covered that in chapter one. Where were you? You see that, but that's just that's just just that's just natural, natural knowledge, or na knowledge of natural things, right? But but he says things more phenomenal than he says. Well, did you know? Did you know that I know you before you were born? I know your name. I know the number of hairs on your head. Did you ever count the number of hairs? Now, some of you is pretty easy. <laughs> well, I've got like three. It's oh, oh now it's two. But. 
but he, he, he says things so amazing. He, he, he says, I've fashioned your days before they were actually days. Wow. We have nine children. I've never thought of a single one of the days that would happen in front of... Now, I had a few dreams for them. But I, I've, I've not been able to predict things like that. I've not been able to tell what they are. Tomorrow, this time at three in the afternoon, you'll, you'll be having a, a Big Mac with a soda. I can't... How do I know that? But this is God, you see. His, his omniscience is, is phenomenal. Not only in the creative order, but in the predictive order, and in the order of future events, and eschatology, and the order of all other things, whether it be sciences, or whether it be law, and judicial proceedings, and how did you know this really is the definition of justice, and, and the, the way that God handles our sense of, of uh, right and wrong, our morality. Who comes up with that stuff? How is it that God knows all that? I don't think that's the right question. Praise you, O oh God, that you are that. That's the right response. But tonight, we're going to talk about omnipresence. And these, these are our four loosely held points tonight. So if you're taking notes and you're welcome to all of my slides, they're not worth very much. You might be able to, to con somebody into looking at them. Temporal expanse, utterly inescapable, totally everywhere, an unqualified effect. And yes, I was trying to be cute, so please, just put up with that. Okay. Now, this is where we're going to go first. The temporal expanse of God. We're talking about his omnipresence, his all-presence. And I'd like you to first turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. Now, a lot of these verses will be PowerPointed for you, but uh, I was only able to put them up in, in a partial way. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Hebrews 13.8. Now for those of you who are wondering how long I'll speak this evening, um, you just might not want to set your watch. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You might not even bring your watch. Okay. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now that's a pretty profound statement. And what we'll see in our next uh, few slides is sort of trying to put our minds around this. Now, um, that, that idea of the same yesterday, today, and forever is noted in several portions of God's Word. As you can see, it's in Revelation 1, 8, 4, 8, and 11, 17. So, so this is not just an isolated statement we're trying to build a doctrine around. This is, this is sort of repetitive themes of God, and, and, he, and he, it gives this idea that, and from a time standpoint, no matter the time that you exist, I am there. So if you were born in 1444, I would be there. If you were born in 2021, I am there. If you were born next year, I am there. See, the presence of God, and this is a very key concept, is outside of time. Now you got to think about that for a moment, because if you're outside of time, that means you created time. You see, think of yourself for a moment as a carpenter. I always wanted to be a carpenter. I tried to build my basement. I failed in two weeks. I had to hire somebody to fix it. I would love to build things. But, you know, God, think of him as a carpenter. 
Now, when a carpenter makes something, he, he goes and he buys the wood, and sometimes it's rough cut wood, and sometimes he has to plane it, shave it off, and plane it, and get it so it's usable. And then after that, he's going to make the table, for example, in front of us. He, he, he sets it out, and he puts the planks next to each other, biscuit cuts them together, glues them such right, scallops the lip around the table, molds the legs, even has to get them wet in some cases to bend them and shape them carefully so that they don't splinter, and then bring it all together. And yet, when he's done, we don't go to the table and say, my, you look like a good carpenter. We don't say the table's the carpenter. We look at the original designer who's standing off outside of the existence of the table, and we say, thank you, this is a very nice table. You see that? In other words, when he says, I am present yesterday, today, and forever, he's saying, I am not actually part of the existence. Never have seen somebody hug the table before. But what he's saying, what he's saying is, is that I am outside of that as creator God. I put my thumbprint on, a, on you. And that's what is meant by this great truth. Now let's look at a couple of other verses. Psalm 90. Whoops. Oh, wrong one. Let's do this one. All right, Psalm 90, verse 2. Don't turn to this. This one is up here for you. It says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, you are God. You see that? Outside of creative order. Look at this one. Today I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, this is important, okay? So let's turn to uh, Revelation 1 8. And it reads, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, we, 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 I'm sure we're aware of this, the Alpha and the Omega, the, the beginning and the ending of the Koine Greek alphabet. And when, when he uses that kind of language, he's really saying, I exist, I exist. I originated the language. I originated the beginning and the end. So I have a beginning starting point, which I infused my power and infused my presence and knowledge in to create, and I'm also the one who brings it to the end. And if that's who I am, then you know that I'm present at every point in between. And thus he says, using different tenses, past, present, and future, who was and is and who is to come. That is the, the sine qua non, right? That's the, the hallmark of, who, of, of the omnipresence of God. Now, because he's omnipresent, he uses it to our advantage. Which is what that Hebrews 7.25 passage says. He always lives to make intercession for you. Aren't you glad about that? There is never a moment since you were born again that someone hasn't been praying for you. And if you think it was only Jesus, think again. For it says that the Spirit of God makes inter uh, intercessions for you with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, what does that mean? That means that two members of the Godhead are praying to the Father for your well-being. Do you think God takes you seriously? Absolutely. But many of us in this life are believing lies that God just doesn't care. I'm here to tell you tonight 
that if you are believing multitudes of lies like that that we hear and tell ourselves in the darkness of our night when the pillow is underneath our head and the room is quiet, and we run through the litany of things of our inner self, of what we think about ourselves and how we think about ourselves, and universally we come up with, you must be a loser, you must be a lousy person, you must be a, a terrible Christian, no father would ever want a child like you. And we run those things over and over and over, and it's fueled by the neo-atheists who are telling us that that's how God feels about you. I want you to know that is not how God feels about you. Why would he ever take all of his omnipresence, with always living to make session for you. Why would he do that if he didn't love you? The answer to that question is he does. He does love you. And so his presence, he wants to surround you. Now, we have much more to say. I shouldn't take too many tangents. Okay. Oops. I should have made that a black font. Sorry. All right. Now, this we don't need to turn to tonight because it's more of a a little bit of a summation of what I just said. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not the wrong button. All right. And the kingdom there will be, in this kingdom there will be no end. You see that? When he's present, he has no end. Now, I don't know about you, but there are certain times in my life in in the United States in which we instituted policies, and I didn't want them to end. And the next election came up, and whatever policies we had instituted, they got changed. Has anybody experienced that before besides me? Need I say the word taxes? Yeah, yeah, you get that idea, right? Now, what happens here is that because God is omnipresent, he always lives to make intercession for us, that's true, But he has, and you ready for this? The power of the indestructible life. That means there's never a regime turnover in heaven. There is never a moment where he says, well, my tenure's up, and who's going to run the, the universe now? He doesn't have that moment. That's not part of his existence. The presence of God has this, this I'm forever going to stay kind of idea. That is the ultimate of bedrock oak tree existence that you and I get to inherit when we come into the family of God. What is wrong with us that we cannot seem to trust that our God is forever present? Now, this is uh, my last, I think this is the last one when it comes to temporal presence. And I'd like you to turn to it and send uh, John. John chapter 8. Now, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read John chapter 8. I'm sure you have. This is a very literate church of the scriptures. And in John chapter 8, he's having, how should we say this nicely, a sort of a robust, vivid conversation with the, uh, with the Pharisees. And uh, some of his witnessing techniques were we would call um, uncouth. For example, he, he calls them um, liars, right? Just said that, you're liars. And then secondly, he, he talks about uh, their, their father, the devil, right? Can you imagine witnessing like that on the street? And today I'm here to tell you that all of you in my presence walking by as fast as you can get away are just like your father, the devil. Well, you know, you could be shot. You know. Can you imagine that, huh? 
That'd be crazy, right? But the Lord Jesus, you know, he kind of he took it head on, really. And so he's talking to these fellows. Now, we'll, we'll focus the conversation in verse 56, and it says like this. Um, oh, let's see. I have to read verse 54. Pardon, pardon me uh, on that spot. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. You hear the, how the Lord Jesus, is, he sets up an argument so well. And yet, you have not known him, but I know him. And if you say, I do not know him, excuse me, and if I say, I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. <laughs> That's, we call that the shot between the eyes, all right? But I do know him and keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Can you? I mean, he's like 30, right? So he's going, you are like just a, a, a young whippersnapper with green stuff behind yours, and you're telling us, and you're 50. How could you? You're just, you're just talking off your head. That's kind of what they're, they're implying. And, and, have you, and said, you're 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? I don't think it was a question of... Um, of uh, wanting more information. It was cynical. It was sarcastic. Have you seen Abraham? <laughs> That's how the Lord Jesus, that was his normal day, right? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> okay, whoa. You're taking us all the way back to Moses now. When Moses in the burning bush, who should I say that sent me? I am sent me. Now the interesting thing about the word I am is that it's always in the present tense. So here I have, I'm, I was raised in the world of math, so I'm sorry if I bore you with that. But this is what we call a line. <laughs> and the line, of course, has no end to the left or to the right. And what we find is that we can uh, locate ourselves at various points in time. So we'll pretend that this middle arrow, this one right here, is you right now, 2020, September, in this lovely building, right? But before, if we go this way, which is back in time, this was you in 1956, or some of you, maybe not all of you. And then this will be you in 2050, okay? And so, but you're right here on your timeline. You're boom, this minute. You can only have one minute at a time. This is the moment you exist. But God's idea of I am is that he supersedes all of that about you. Now, that is just a, a graphic way to explain this phenomenal idea that he was telling these Jews. He says before Abraham was I am. And I'm, I am in your life, too. So you can, you can try to get away from me, but you can't. That's pretty profound because some of us are trying to get away from God even as we speak. We're trying to run in the opposite direction. We're trying to, to hide from God, maybe hide our sin. But the presence of God will never let that happen. And so if you're on a journey tonight in which you're trying to get away from God, either emotionally, physically, spiritually, I don't mean to break your bubble, but you're already lost. How do you get away from someone who's all present? You can't. You see, this is not to frighten you. This is to generate a different perspective about God. 
This is to generate the right understanding of who God is so that we can, we can react to him in the right order, in the right manner. We can regard him in the right way. And I tell you, the right way will end up being a worshipful way because when we see him as he is, there is no other response than worshiping this great God that we have. Now, this leads us into Jeremiah. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23. Jeremiah 23, verse 23. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord. In other words, he says it very clearly. You cannot get away from me. I designed it that way. Now, compare this to the Garden of Eden for a minute. This is God. God's always been the same, and that means he's utterly inescapable, and he was utterly inescapable today, and he was utterly inescapable back in the garden at the very onset of the dawn of time and creation. And here we have this sin, and God takes a walk in the cool of the day, according to Genesis chapter 3. And that sounds like he's always been walking in the cool of the day with Adam, his creature, and they were just, just, just communing together, just talking, like you and I would do as if in a friendship. And we're just walking along. But this day, of all days, Adam was mysteriously absent. It seems to me that that was the first time of all of human history in which man and God were apart. And when that happened, God says to Adam, he says, Adam, where are you? Now, for some infantile reason in my head, I always imagine Adam was like, you know, way over there, a couple of hundred yards away. But according to the text, he wasn't. And it appears that he's like right over here. <laughs> hey there. <laughs> How you doing? Uh, you kind of caught me at a bad time, you know. <laughs> Maybe we could talk later. You see, now that's a loose paraphrase. Steve's standard version, do out this Christmas. I lost my thingy. All right. Got it. Okay. Now, I tell you that because that, that, how could Adam ever think that he could hide from God? And some of us think we can hide from God. And you can't. So I don't know what painful embittered experiences you have right now. And I don't know if you've been trying to push God off and distance yourself from his presence, but he won't let you in on purpose. He will pursue you. It says in the book of James, it says, do you not know that the spirit of God who dwells within you yearns jealously? Do you know what that means? I will not give up on you without a fight. My presence will be with you. He's always wanted his presence with the people, and it's the people who never wanted the presence of God with them. 
That happened at the dawn of our sin, and it happened ever since, where God designed this great, this great tabernacle system, and he was going to be in the center of the camp, and it was going to be a most glorious thing. And what's the first thing they do? They find another idol. They just didn't want to be with God. The one that wants to be with his people at all points, in all measurements of time, and all moments of existence, and it's the people who would rather not have that happen. Oh, listen, saints, that is not a new phenomenon. That is a church phenomenon, and that is true even in the book of Revelation, in the church of Laodicea, for that's where you'll find our Christ outside of the building, knocking to be let in, and hear his voice, his voice that sounds like this. Oh, if but you just open the door, we'll come in. We'll sup together. That means we'll have an evening supper. We'll have the biggest meal of the day together. And we'll, we'll, we'll dine. I'll serve you. I'll be, I'll be the host for you. Do you hear the voice of God dripping to have his presence with you and you to enjoy his presence? How many of us have failed to enjoy the presence of God? Because we're hiding. Usually behind our sin or what we think is a hiding our sin. Or we're hiding because we're just independent people. You know, we like to do it our way. After all, we're an American, right? We shoot first, ask later. You see, God would, would really like you to enjoy his presence. And I spent a lot of my years pretending to enjoy his presence, but always afraid of his presence. I think that should change, don't you? You see, we got to understand this heart of God, don't we? Now, it says here, oh, you're supposed to catch the graphic, the visual imagery, the deep water sea. Okay, that's the thing. And it says here that you cannot escape him. This is Psalm 137. Where can I go from your presence? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. And you are there and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea. You see, that's the whole picture thing. That was supposed to be the, the idea. Even though you shall lead me. Now, if I had to explain every picture, it's not going to be very fun. Okay. My point is simple. You can't escape God. You can't. Now, this one is a similar thought. It's almost, almost to the end of this little point of utterly inescapable. But I, I, like, I like the Amos passage, so I'm going to turn there. Okay, Amos 9, 2. Excuse me, 9, verse 2. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Do you hear that? Do you hear God speaking about how he's, it's, he's dealing with Israel in the context? And, and he's talking about what Israel might do. Though they climb up to heaven, there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea. From there, I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. He's talking about judgment, of course. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall, be slain, it shall slay them. I will set my eyes upon them for harm and not good. Now, that's a very startling verse because he's using his omnipresence to pursue his people. And in this case, it's a pursuit of discipline. Maybe you're in that spot too. 
that God has been disciplining you and you wish you would, he would take his hand off you, you wish he would just stop and, and, and he hasn't because the presence of God is with you. And you've interpreted, misinterpreted, I might add, the presence of God as a negative uh, thing. And and, and you're almost siding with the neo-atheist of the day that accused God of being sort of vindictive and temperamental. And he's just kind of trying to make your life miserable. You're better off to eject that concept of spiritual existence because, because it makes you a miserable human being. And God is saying, no, it's not misery. I chasten every child whom I love. My presence comes in that form too. But there's more to this than that. I want you to see this, that the presence of God is in his church, or excuse me, in his individual. And the individual here is this passage here comes to you from 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body, now this is talking soma, this is talking about you as an individual, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now this is a pretty amazing statement, temple of the Holy Spirit. The way we have to understand that is we have to think of the temple of God in the Old Testament, where God would dwell. And remember Solomon's temple, where it was overlaid with gold inside and out, and you had the the golden candelabra, the menorah, and the table of showbread, and and you had the, uh, the incense, and then the, the Ark of the Covenant and the angelic beings, the, the models of those with their gold, lay, overlaid in gold uh, bodies, if you will, figurines. And, and just the whole idea of the gold of the room was all depicting the presence of God. And it was designed so that all of the world really would come to the house and pray and be in his presence. And he says, that wish of mine is now transferred over to the church today to you as an individual where I could be with you at all moments in time where we can talk freely, we can be together, we can exist in harmony like I've always longed and always wanted, which was forfeited to the Garden of Eden. That's what God is saying. I want my presence with you. You know, when I was a boy, I was silly. I was saved at camp. So if you've been saved at camp, praise God. I made camp so dear to me over the years, and so I, I see Turkey Hills here, and I, I'm just thrilled about that. But when I was saved, I went home, and uh, I was eight. I just assumed God was with me all the time. So I went to bed one night, and it was my little twin bed in my little room. I had little, I had little race cars on my blanket. It was kind of cool. And, and I scooted all the way over to the left, and I said, as if the Lord was standing right there, now if you want to lay down, you can lay right here. I've saved my pillow for you. Now, I want you to know that I did not see a dent in the pillow and the cookies eaten in the morning. It wasn't that, okay. But if I tell you what a little boy would say to his God, and we would go, oh, how much would God go, oh, I want to be with you too. Now that, I think, is precious. Now there is another idea that God is everywhere corporately. This is again in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Same language, but this time it's referring, I believe, in the context to the whole church, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And just in case you think I'm making that up, Ephesians 2.21 says the same thing. You know, there's a cliff there. i got to be careful. All right, the whole building grows into a holy temple in the Lord for a dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Question for you. 
Where does God dwell if he doesn't dwell in his people? In other words, God had, back in the Old Testament, he said, I have designated this temple, this physical temple Solomon's built to dwell in. In the New Testament, different dispensation, different set of parameters, similar terminology. Except this time he's saying, I dwell in you, all of you. As a body of Christ, that's where I am. And you, you, you almost hear God says, and I love it. I love being with my people. So everything that there's about God is supposed to be about his people because he lives in the individual and then corporately with us all through the spirit of God. And, and so if God is, is, is loving, then collectively we're loving. And if God is gracious, then collectively we're gracious. And God is merciful, then collectively we're merciful. And we show that individually from one person to another and from one person to those who are outside of the group. You see, we are, we are emanating, we are demonstrating, we are, we, are, we are propagating God in a collective unit of many people. How many, how many Fortune 500 companies wish they could do that? You know, everybody on the same page doing the same thing? All of them want that. My goodness, they have trips to, to, to the Whitewater Rapids so we can be bonding that's where you take the paddle and hit the other guy because you don't like him. <laughs> but God, in one stroke of genius, by the power of resurrection and the cost of his, his bloodied son on the cross, creates unity and oneness with his presence in one stroke. Amen. And we go around and we don't think it's very cool. We don't think it's the greatest thing on earth. We think it's kind of like, oh, well, i got to go to church again. Now, let me tell you something. You get to go to church again. Let me tell you something. You get to serve in the body of Christ. It is a privilege to be in this place. It is a privilege to be in the bride, to be the bride of the Savior. It is not something that you tolerate. It is not something that you put up with, that you endure. It is something you treasure. Because God is in your presence. I should move on. Time is against me. Now, there are going to be some application points in our last major point of the evening, which is its unequivocal effect. I tried to include those as we've gone through the other major points tonight, but this is sort of where we have the rubber meet the road. Now, in this case, I want you to see that God is, his presence has a way of giving us confidence. Now in Isaiah, and unfortunately I can't turn to these now because the clock is ticking, but it says this, the former things, I have, uh, former things have come to pass and new things I declare before they spring forth. Do you see that, that prophetical element of God? The reason why I can do that is because it exists at all points in time. So that even before it came to pass, this is now a few chapters later, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done it. You see what he's saying? I'm going to use my omnipresence to allow predictive prophecy to be true. For I know that if you don't see 
that my predictive ways uh, where I predict this will happen and it does, if you don't see that, then you will naturally turn to an idolatrous concept. Now, this is very much in secular society. You can see it in the movies that are produced. You'll hear it like this. Well, fate has determined it. Fate. Fate. Fate? Let me tell you something. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Fate has nothing to do with it. God has everything to do with it. And I think this is an important thing. We, we begin to, to sometimes think our God, his presence is waning, and so really he was kind of busy today, and we understand it, but you know, we kind of got distracted, and uh, here's the best we have as a result. I know he'll fix it, but you know, God just wasn't paying attention. What can I say? You see, that's not your God. Uh, our God is so scientifically accurate and precise with his calculations that he can say there's going to be a king born by the name of Cyrus who will let the people go. And guess what? A king is born by the name of Cyrus who lets the people go back to the land of, of, of Palestine. Who can say that there will be a, a person born by a virgin and four unique historians of the ancient Near Eastern literature which happens to be housed in your Bible will actually say this man was born. You see... This element of God's presence, which spans all time and will make sure that what he says here will actually occur in the time that he said when it will occur here, that's the kind of God you are. And if that's the kind of God you have, what are you doing not regarding him with great respect and esteem? What are you doing playing around with the world? What are you doing absorbing into yourself? You don't have that right, that privilege. This person demands our respect, not because he's demanding it, because he is, because he's absolutely omnipresent. Now, this one here, the presence of God puts, out, puts down disputes. Now, this is an interesting case. We have Numbers chapter 12, and in Numbers chapter 12, you have Miriam, which is, of course, the sister to Moses and Aaron, Aaron and Moses excuse me, and Miriam and Aaron, the oldest brother and the sister, they began to, to speak against Moses here because of the Ethiopian woman who was his wife and said, has the Lord really spoken only through Moses? I don't think so. Steve Standard Version, be out later. He has not spoken, has he, ah, I did that again, hit the wrong button. Has he not spoken through us also? Oh, I hit the wrong button again. All right. The Lord came down in a pillar of the cloud and stood and called Aaron and Miriam. You know what that is? That's like being called to the principal's office. And when God calls you to the office, it's not nice. I mean, I'd be, okay, I'll be right there. I told you you should have been quiet. I was just, you were the one who, you know. Can you see that? Now notice the presence, now this is not the only time that the presence of God solved problems. I, should I remind you of the son of Korah and the whole incident where the earth opened up and swallowed everybody and the presence of the Lord and everybody quit fighting? Now, shouldn't that be with us today? Should the presence of God not be so, so drilled, tattooed, uh, 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 engraved in our thinking that we cannot afford to allow disputes between the people of God because the presence of God will be, will be marred by our disputes and disagreements? 
When will we be a people that will actually fear the Lord to the degree that because of him, we would actually hold back and we would seek peace and resolve the situation rather than be right? Oh, listen, saints, don't get me wrong. Yes, sin must be judged. Yes, it must be. I agree. But I'm not always so sure that's at what's st- that's at what's stake as it is my own pride my own desire to be right my own desire to be recognized i think that's what's at play like it was here you see the presence of god steps in and all of this fussiness goes away can we not be that people i think we can by the grace of god now there's one more here gives us perspective. This is the Job story. And I, I cited it earlier in our discussion here. It's simply the sort of one of the things God said to Job. And what, what happened to Job is he had a new perspective about God. That's what we need to have. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's God talking. You know what he's saying? Who is this that's talking so stupidly? That's, I mean, it's a loose translation. All right, now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Interpreted means, put your man pants on, we have a little talking to do. Okay? And where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? See, that, it, that, see when, when, when God finished speaking, Job's answer was, well, I had a question about the atomic arrangement of the protons and the electrons and, and how the electrical charge is balanced. Did, did Job say any of that stuff? I'll tell you what he said. I shouldn't speak now, God. For I have been speaking as if I know, I know nothing. Please continue. That's the kind of attitude we need. It's called the fear of the Lord. And it's not a, it's not a, it's not a thing that, that you walk around like, I'm afraid God's going to hit me with another lightning bolt. It's where we have this correct perception of who he is, what he is, and how he is, and we know him so well that we can safely operate within his character and be at peace. That's what it's about. And finally, there's this one. Oh, it's not finally, it's almost there. <laughs> it's the idea of it gives purification. First John 3, 2 through 3 says this, It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see, his presence shows up. We're transformed. And then John says, when we have that knowledge, this hope right there, we'll want to be pure now. One of the things that we've lost as a body of Christ is we lost our desire to, for purity. You see... Everything God has done for his bride is designed to make her chaste and blameless. And we're sitting back in the corner rubbing dirt on her clothes. If the presence of God and our expectation of his presence in that coming day was truly riveting our souls, then we would think not about how to commit the next sin and cover it up, but we would think about how we can't wait to see him. And we want with all of my energies to be ready to see the bridegroom's tender eyes. What happened to that? I think it's time to recover that, is what I think. 
I think it's time for a change. Oops. I'm sorry, I should have put that in black print. It gives refinement. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. See that idea of omnipresence? And it says, keeping watch on the good and evil. It says this in the next slide, and I love this one. It says that, that my eyes are on their ways, Jeremiah 16, 17. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. The presence of God produces a purity that is par excellence, or at least it should be. And his eyes go to, and, or excuse me, in this place, there, the, uh, there is not a creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open before the eyes of the Lord. And this is the key to whom we must give account. That's the whole idea of the presence of God. Not just that he sees it, but that we actually will need to answer for it. And that should be a motivating element of our Christian existence that would drive us away from sin and drive us unto the righteous acts of Jesus Christ. Finally, this one. Because he's omnipresent, he takes his energies and searches the globe looking for those whose heart is perfect towards his, a heart who's loyal. Let me ask you tonight, will you make a commitment to God that he would find a loyal heart in you? Because he's already present with you. He's already resting longing for you to not just acknowledge his presence but to accept his presence as Lord of your soul. More than anything else, I struggle with him being king of my life. I have this throne in my proverbial soul. I say to God, you can have 90%. He says, I was actually interested in the other 10 I said, well, you should be happy with 90, so I'll give you five. We'll call it even. Time goes on, and he says, I'd like that five. I said, you should be happy with 95. I'll give you two and a half more. Comes along later, I'd like that two and a half. I said, why can't you leave the two and a half alone? I just want a little bit. He says, I'd like it all. My presence wants to go with you in all aspects of your life. Let's pray. Our dear Father, I have great trouble, I confess, being a man that always loves your presence. In fact, more than not, Lord, I wish you weren't there sometimes. More than not, Father, I, I'm, I'm shocked when I realize you saw. Oh, God, make me a man that longs for the presence of you in me. 24-7, cognizant and responsive to you. In Jesus' name, amen.